Welcome to Parent to Parent, real-life tips to raise resilient kids. A podcast from Communities That Care of Greater Downingtown. This is Chrissy Jambowski, and I have two young kids. And I'm Beth Ann Sinelli, and I have two adult kids. Together, we'll meet with experts and fellow parents to share personal stories and provide support and actionable steps to strengthen your family and raise healthy kids. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Parent to Parent. This is Chrissy, and today I am on my own, but I am here with you in your ears for a very special episode. Um, So one of the things that we like to do with our podcast, in addition to interviewing experts about specific topics, is also bringing real-life stories and experience from parents in our community to you so that you can find support. You might find things within other people's experiences and stories that sounds like your own life. Um, And also just to know that you're not alone and that other parents are are living a similar life and might be in similar situations as you are in. Um, So I'm very excited that today joining me is Cynthia Black. So Cynthia is a downtown area school district parent, well, former parent because her kids are, are adults now. But Cynthia also is one of my very good friends, one of Beth Ann's very good friends, also is the former board president of CTC. So we're very tied in in multiple different ways. So Cynthia is here to chat with us today about her family's journey with her son and his substance um, use disorder, and also what advice and support she can offer to other parents who may be where she was. So Cynthia, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Chrissy. I appreciate you inviting me. So I think a good place to start would be, can you just tell us a little bit about you and your family? Sure. Um, My husband, Paul, and I have three kids, two girls and a boy. They're now 32, 28, and 26. Um, We thought we had a fairly average household while the kids were growing up. Um, We did lots of things together. They were doing well in school. We ate dinner together every night, attended church. My kids love being part of the youth group there. Um, We spent most of our Saturdays on some field or another playing sports, and they took piano lessons, played instruments at school, really, you know, tried a lot of different things. And we talked, 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 because all three of my kids were nonstop talkers. Mm -hmm. We thought we were prepared for the challenges of the teen years um, and just really weren't worried. You know, peer pressure, drugs and alcohol, dating, but oh my gosh, we were caught off guard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you would, you would say probably you were kind of like a good on paper kind of. Perfect. <laughs> Not perfect. Never perfect. But Never yeah. Perfect. Okay. All right. And so, and I know mostly today what we're going to be talking about is your youngest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when would you say, did you maybe start noticing something seemed to be happening with Max or something was off? And then kind of, can you kind of give us some background of like when you started to notice some things and the progression of all of that? Sure. Um, I think, believe it or not, I don't remember exactly, but it's kind of a blur. Um, I think it was the summer after ninth grade that we caught him with pot. Um, and he was mortified and he was very sorry, promised that he hadn't done it much, wouldn't continue. Um, we did take away a huge privilege that very first time, which was playing in a rock band. So for a month, he couldn't do that. And we thought that was the end of it. Uh, Then later we found out he was smoking again. This time we took him to see a counselor who was recommended by a friend to better understand if he had a problem. Now at the time, I mean, we really didn't think he did. We just wanted to scare him and to make it a very serious issue. Um, And the counselor said, no, it wasn't a big deal. Max was remorseful and uh, not to worry about it. So that that was ninth grade. No, that was after ninth grade. That was 10th grade. Uh, Throughout 10th and 11th, Max's set of friends changed. He became less passionate about playing music, not interested in any sports. His grades dropped drastically over the next two years. And that sounds like textbook red flags, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you see a brochure if if your child is doing these things. It's all the things that we say on this podcast. Like, like, look for these things, these changes in behavior, these different markers, those types of things. Yeah. But all the changes were so gradual Mm. that it was hard to tell the difference between what might just be adolescent insecurity and Mm -hmm. normal struggles versus something much worse. And I remember my girls in high school 
they also went through a change of friends in like about 11th grade, but that's typical, especially for girls. Mm-hmm. When you have to start making choices about uh, behavior and what your values are and who you're going to hang with. Um, and so, you know, we probably thought this was the same thing going on with Max, but it really wasn't. Then the turning point came near the end of 11th grade when he was caught smoking point pot at school. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed his cell phone just kind of out of anger and started looking at it to see if there was something else we were missing. And we had no idea how big of a problem he had. Do you feel like it maybe was one of those things that when you're, like you said, it was so gradual and such small things. Yes. And also the, that kind of phenomenon of like when you're in something, you don't necessarily see things or feel things as opposed to maybe like you said, like a therapist or a counselor or somebody who's an objective person outside of the situation. I mean, just writing this down to kind of share with you today Mm -hmm. was like, Oh my gosh, if I had ever written it all down. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot. It's like a beep, 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 you know, you need help. Yeah. And, and we did look for help along the way. Mm Mm-hmm. But we really did still kind of keep control of it. And that that wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Um, So after I took his phone, you know, then we realized he was using all kinds of pills. Sneaking out after we went to sleep. I had no idea Mm -hmm. to get more drugs Mm -hmm. and discussing it all on text and social media. Mm -hmm. You know, even since they were little, we always said, don't write stuff down. (laughs) (laughs) They get you in trouble. And this would be, and this would be too, like, so, okay, so if he's in this way. This would be like, I guess when smart every, smartphones became pretty, like, accessible, like, everyone had iPhones, I guess, in the 2010s-ish. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was, he graduated in 14, so it was really okay. about 2012. Okay, so it was before, like, the, the total width and breadth of apps and things existed. That's right. But when texting really started to take off, and it really, right. the individual experience of, like, communicating with your peers is happening completely in secret away or not in secret, but just you're not sitting on the phone that's hooked up to the wall. That's in the kitchen or somewhere in the house where your parent can overhear you. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't allow computers in their rooms. Mm -hmm. You know, we had one computer that everybody used downstairs. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have as, as much of that, but still, I guess if you're not looking for it, you don't see stuff. You don't see what's happening. Yeah. And if it's the day to day also, right. You have two other kids and you're just, you're going through life the day to day. So it's, it is, yeah. it's, it's like a, it's not a slippery slope, but you could see how it's a gradual slope, I guess. It like is. It is. And you, and you go through all the feelings of you're just frustrated. You're exasperated. You're angry. You don't want to deal with it. I mean, you get tired of it. Mm-hmm. it it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, but, and, and we had also gone to, um, taken him to a lot of therapists and psychiatrists at this point Mm -hmm. Um, because depression runs in my side of the family. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, he, he must have depression or anxiety. And if we can get somebody to fix that, we need antidepressants for that. Then he won't smoke pot to feel better, Mm -hmm. you know, because he kept saying he could quit, but he wouldn't. And I felt like maybe he couldn't quit because he was so depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't work. That wasn't, that wasn't what he needed. And, um, as a last resort, when my husband was considering one of those wilderness camps out in Utah, Mm -hmm. I said, no, we've got to try one more thing. So we went to rehab after school, which is in Exton and the counselor there was Lex Remillard and Max was only in his office for 10 minutes when he came out and said, oh my gosh, it's like that man can read my mind. And thank goodness he, um, he went to group there for a few weeks with other kids his age, and eventually he agreed that he couldn't stop using on his own and he needed rehab. Mm. So he didn't. So oh, sorry. So he did an outpatient approach first. Yes. Before then going into an inpatient program. Yeah. Because we we all we all three we had so much to learn mm. before we were also convinced that he needed to go to rehab, and it was the kids in that group that said to Max, "Yeah, a lot of kids are smoking pot." It seems like everybody smokes pot, but they're not all having problems. Mm. They're not failing. They're not lying. They're not stealing. They're not getting in trouble. They're not here at this group. So when you say that you all had something to learn, can you just talk a little bit more about that as far as the maybe the work that you and your husband did or what that looked like? 
Yeah, we, um, I guess the biggest thing we learned is that we hadn't really thought of marijuana as being addictive. Mm. How could he have gotten into this horrible problem, smoking pot? Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we learned that addiction isn't necessarily about the substance that you use. There are certainly things out there that anybody can get addicted to opioids, heroin, cocaine, they say crack, uh, get you hooked immediately. But if you have that predisposition toward addiction, if you have that family genetics that makes you at risk, it's not really about what you use. It's about just needing to feel differently. And Max escalated so fast from smoking pot um, to, to other drugs because it wasn't enough. The more he smoked, the more he needed and he didn't get that same feeling. And so then he kind of escalated to other things. Um, Did he ever share like the, and come out of it, what those root causes were for use? Because we know oftentimes, you know, other people that I've spoken with, um, and in my, you know, other job working in a teaching position, you know, would have guest speakers and people that are in recovery from substance use disorder. And sure. so oftentimes so many people use the metaphor or the analogy of it's like you have an empty, like a hole that needs to be filled with something. Mm-hmm. It's like, so you're, you're using this, you know, in addition, we talk about self-medication and wanting to escape and relieve stress and those types of things. But so many people use that of like, I just didn't feel like things would click for me, or I just couldn't feel like I was, fully could be myself until I used X, Y, Z. And it's like everything would just instantly improved or clicked or felt better to me. Um, Did he, did, was that ever or whatever, you know what I mean? You know, at the beginning while he was still using, he always said, Oh, I just, because we'd say, why, why won't you stop? Why can't you stop? Mm -hmm. And he'd say, well, I don't want to, it's fun. Mm -hmm. I just do it because it's fun Mm -hmm. and you're overreacting. And then eventually he said, you know, I, needed somewhere to fit and I didn't fit. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big athlete. You know, I didn't want to join this club or that club. And this made me feel better. It made me feel like I had a group mm-hmm. and, uh, and it, it helped him not feel eventually he said it just helped me not feel or think about anything. I didn't worry about, was I good enough or did I fit in or, you know, yeah, he just, it just helped me not to think. So he, so, okay. So it took like, let me just back up our timeline. So it took about two ish years or so, like from start of use to kind of going through all these different steps and things you described. And then his junior year, he ended up doing outpatient rehab after work and then did inpatient. So what happened after that? Yeah. So he went to rehab inpatient summer after 11th grade and spent almost two months there. Yeah. So in, yeah. An inpatient means residential yeah. program. So it's like you're there full time. You live there. You yeah. have all meals there. That That's hard. where you are. That was a hard, hard, hard decision to yeah. make because you have to relinquish control. And yeah. child. you give up your child to some of somebody you don't know. Yes. He was only 17, but oh, little baby bird. It was a heartbreaking summer, but it saved his life. And mm-hmm. the rest of the family went there for a weekend to learn more about addiction and recovery. Mm-hmm. So that we could be supportive of Max and it was what to do and what not to do when he came home. And that's really important because we, we just, we're still learning, learning about the family's role and Mm. how it really does affect the whole family. So my daughters were really supportive in the fact that they wanted to go. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Cynthia is going to tell us how her family adjusted to this and the work that they did while Max was doing his work and also how he's doing today. So we'll be right back. If you're enjoying our podcast, an easy way to support Parent to Parent is by sharing it with a friend. You can send it to them in a text from your phone, or even better, post an episode you liked on social media. Maybe it's this one. Our goal is to increase education and awareness among parents. And as we always say, you don't know what you don't know. And some people may not know we are out there. Any shout outs and sharing is appreciated. Thanks. And let's get back to our conversation. Okay, and we're back. So, Cynthia, you were just saying, um, explaining, I guess, you know, that while Max was inpatient for the summer, you know, 
doing work to get stable and recovery and sober. Um, you and your family also were learning about your roles and getting help for yourself. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that and what that looked like? Sure. Um, so while Max was away, um, we continued to go to the parent group that was offered at uh, rehab after school. And some of the parents there, that was a weekly meeting. Um, some of the parents' kids were also at rehab. Some were still in the midst of using. Some were at home recovering. Um, and it was hard. It was not an easy thing. I'm used to, I'm a social worker, so I'm used to the whole counseling um, and therapy world. My husband was not. He's very private. Um, but he went because we would do anything. Uh, for Max. And the group was really helpful because we could hear from other parents similar feelings we had had along the way. Mm. Um, we heard how they handled problems that came up mm. during and after rehab. Mm -hmm. um, we could hear parents struggling, wanting so much to protect their child from this illness, and there's nothing you can do to protect. So mm. it, it just was reinforcing that no one's unique. You know, it looks a little different with each child, but it's just almost the same script and the same horrible things that happen. And and hopefully you're the in the lucky group where the kid comes out okay. Did you all seek out, well, I have two questions. Did you all seek out your own counseling too, or did you just do the group? You know, I did have a counselor um, at the time. Um just to sort of keep my sanity, you know, wanting to be a good parent and wife while all of this was going on to my other kids and my husband. And um, so I did see her occasionally, mm -hmm. um, not that much that summer. It was enough to be going to this parent group. Yeah. Um, Lex, the leader, would also give us books or different things to read to help to understand addiction, enabling, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, and what's it going to be like when he comes home? Yeah. And what's our role? Because we thought, oh, my gosh, are we going to have to change too? Yeah. You know, isn't this just it's his problem and he goes and gets fixed and we're all just the same when he comes home. But it's not. Mm. So then what changed um, once? Can you talk about that? What changed? How did those roles kind of shift? Um. Well, you know, just a concrete example is we decided, Max said he didn't think he needed us to, but we decided to take any alcohol out of the house. So there were no temptations um, in the home. We wanted it to be a safe place for him. Mm. And um, it wasn't that big a deal. We thought it was going to be, but it was fine. It wasn't, a, you know, when your child's life's on the line, it's not a big deal. So we, we had a dry house. We had a uh, graduation party for him with, of course, no alcohol for the adults. Um and believe it or not, there were a lot of adults who thought that was really odd, but it, it's just such a tiny little thing. Mm. Um, and we had to learn what types of things we might have been doing that either added to Max's stress mm -hmm. or um, trying to help too much. We what, what was it that I would do that was enabling? Mm -hmm. um, and that was helpful. The main thing is, though, that they taught us is that when Max comes home, he knows what he needs to do. He will have the tools to do it. Mm -hmm. And while we need to be supportive and give him his space, it wasn't up to us to make sure he went to meetings or talked to counselors or whatever. It was it was on him. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very freeing, actually. Mm -hmm. It was a relief because you feel so responsible for your children your whole their whole lives. Yes. That at this point, this was on him whether he would make it or not. And it is one of those things where it's one of... Substance use disorder, right, and dependency on a substance is one of the only things where the person themselves, it's on them. They have to choose when they're ready to access help, when they're ready to want to stop using. No one can, no parent, you can't, as much as you want to fix things for your kid, no yeah. parent can fix that. You can't fix it for a partner, for an adult, for a friend, for a kid. That person has to do it, has to want to do it on their own. That's which, right but which I imagine is a feeling of complete helplessness and lack of control, which it's is really not both. Once I understood this, the, the illness, once I understood what recovery would look like, mm. it was a hands off. And, and it was actually a, a, the biggest relief we'd had in years. 
So once, so once, what did it look like when Max then came home? And with the, because if it was in the summer, right? And the girls, they were a little older than him. So right. the sisters were home. They were. How did that all play yeah. out? Well, it was very awkward at first because we just didn't know how it would be. Yeah. And um, um, looking back, we realized that the girls who usually were gone doing their own thing mm never left the house <laughs> for the first few weeks. They were just so protective of Max and they just, you know, I, I have pictures of them playing chess with him and playing ping pong and just, he probably needed space, but they were afraid to leave him alone. Um, and they knew he couldn't really go out and socialize. He hadn't made a lot of sober friends yet. Mm. Um, and they were there and it's, it's a lovely thing. It's really a good thing. And I think it helped that we, they went to the, family weekend with us at the treatment center to understand. Um, And then, you know what, things gradually got back to a new normal. Um, And Max found that he was happy and that he loved music. He was so afraid if he wasn't using, you know, people say, Oh, you're so creative when you're not quite with it. When you met people who artists who have mental illness are so creative, Mm -hmm. you know, he, just found that he loved hiking and being outside and playing his music and even playing video games, whatever it was, he was just so clear and could thoroughly enjoy it. Mm. And that was a surprise to him. Um, So life was good. He found, he went to a bunch of AA programs, meetings. He went to NA meetings. You have to try them out. It seems to find the one where it fits your personality and your place in life. Um, he went very regularly. He found himself a sponsor, um, did the 12 steps. He worked on that at rehab, but then he worked on that for at least the next year doing the 12 steps. And, you know, he shared that it was a surprise to him and to me, really, that really only one of the 12 steps is about substance use. And Mm -hmm. the rest is about character and building yourself up and understanding who you are and what you need and, and, um, and then he said that summary, he said, you know, it was almost a gift to have become addicted and to go to recovery because it taught me that as long as I'm okay on the inside and I feel good about my choices, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. It doesn't matter how many friends I have or, you know, what my plans are. It's, it's Okay. And he, and I, you know what, and that helped him all four years of college. I think that kept going back to that. That's quite a wise sage you have there. Yeah. 17. (laughs) That's a life lesson to learn at 17. What a gift. It really is. It is. We all, in a weird, weird, odd way. Like we all grew from it. We all learned so much. Mm. So I love that. There you go. So how, so yeah, so Max is now, so tell us how, where, where did, so you said four years of college. So where, how is he doing today? Where is, where is he? What's happening? He's 26. He's, let me just first say, we're so lucky to say that he's doing great. We know so many friends who have lost their children Mm. to overdoses or suicide. We know several of Max's high school friends that are in jail and other parents who don't even know where their kids are. So we're, we're so thankful. Um, Max will have nine years this June free of alcohol and drugs. Congratulations, Max. Um, if you listen to yeah. this, hopefully He's you will. fortunate not to have relapsed at this point because the statistics say nine out of 10 um, people in recovery do relapse. Yeah. And he has not. He finished, uh, well, I said he went to college. He lives in Philly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very happy living on his own, has a couple jobs. Um, and his main goal is, is he writes in music and plays in bands. Mm-hmm. He's doing really well. That's um, just like such a beautiful ending. Yeah. Not an ending. But a, it's not an ending, but it's we sure are fortunate. So, looking back now, right? Because we know hindsight is twenty twenty, and you always look back and are like, "Well, what could I have done differently? Or if I did this one thing instead of that thing, how much would the path have changed or been different?" So, looking back, what would you say maybe are your top shoulda, coulda, woulda moments where if you could have gone back in time and waved a magic wand, can you think of any that come to mind that you want to share? Yeah. Uh, My husband and I still talk about this. Um, 
And I, I, first I would say, while there are definitely things I wish I had done differently, I'm not sure that it would have changed the course of Max's journey. Mm. We, we don't know. I know statistically the later a kid starts tr- using alcohol, marijuana, anything, the older they are, the less likely they will have a problem. Mm. And if they do have a problem, they're more able to deal with it. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I know it takes the right person, the right timing, the right help. So, but this is what I would have done differently. I would have educated myself as a parent. You know how when you're pregnant and you're, you read and read and read and you're yes. so excited about the, what to expect and uh-huh. the different stages of development and you just hang on the pediatrician's every word, yes. you know, is your child fitting that model? Then all of a sudden you quit. And I wish I had kept reading and talking to parents and not just assume, okay, everything's going to go just like I visioned before this baby came. Mm. Um, You can learn so much from other parents and when they had difficult times, but you don't really think that way. Mm -hmm. And life is so different now than when I was a teen. And I don't think I recognized that with my children. Mm. Um, I didn't understand that the brain keeps developing until mid to I guess mid twenties, is it? Yep. Early twenties. Usually I didn't understand that. I didn't know that was one of the reasons why twenty-one is the legal drinking age. Yeah. Right? I it makes sense, but I didn't know that. I didn't know understand how depression or anxiety looks in kids mm. and that it can lead to eating disorders, um, self-harm and substance abuse. Mm-hmm. I didn't know um, that addiction I told you earlier was necessarily about the substance used. For Max, marijuana was his drug of choice. Mm-hmm. We didn't really think it was addictive, mm-hmm. my husband and I. But because of our family genetics, that was in it. That was the beginning. That and it escalated fast. Till two years later, he was a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would. I guess that's what we call prevention. You're reading about it before it happens, and it's a hard thing to do. But I wish I had. Uh, something you just said about marijuana just made me think of something when just as an aside, because you said you didn't feel like, and I, I, and I think this is, and we know this is statistics show us this, that most people on average have very low risk perception for marijuana. Right. So we don't think it's that necessarily very harmful. Um, but we do know, and that there's a debate about is marijuana a quote unquote gateway drug. And the interesting thing is, and this kind of does match up a little bit with, your kid's experience is that, you know, he ended up starting there and then moved on to other types of, you know, substances is that when I was at a conference, someone who does a ton of research on marijuana use specifically among young adults and college kids. Um, but she, what she was and, and high school kids as well, like young kids, um, adolescents, I should say. And one of the things she talked about was how the reason behind that is not necessarily that, I hope I say this correctly. I'll, I'll find it and link it up in the show notes if I can find her article and research. But it just about how the reason why marijuana can be sort of a gateway drug to other substances is not is because when you have that substance around, it's there's such a social aspect to it and such mm-hmm. a group norm around it, right? So like, and the likelihood statistically of people that you are you are going to be smoking weed with or using marijuana with that they will have other substances to offer and available is very high. So it's something there's, and it was interesting because I've never heard anybody say it that way, but it was very interesting how she laid it out with her research. It's, it's backed with data that this is the reason why there's an association with marijuana use and alcohol use and marijuana use and other drug use because of the social aspect to it, the like what environmental factors that exist so that's I thought exactly. that I haven't heard that. And that's, that describes it to a T. Okay. Max, um, his new set of friends were mostly friends whose either both parents were working or it was single parents and the mom was working. Mm-hmm. So they were home alone a lot. Mm. And that's where Max always wanted to go. Mm. And I was a stay at home mom for most of his, um, childhood. So there was a lot of freedom and, that's exactly right. He said the friend that he used with most, every time they tried something new, they'd say, well, let's, let's try that, but we'll never do this. Mm-hmm. 
well, we'll, we'll try that. Okay, well, let's try that next thing, but we'll never do heroin or we'll never end this. And it was a group thing. And this, the summer Max was in rehab, that best friend started shooting heroin. And Max said, I would have been right there. It just, just like our norm at home right. changed gradually, his use changed slowly, not, not to us. It was within two years, but um, it's true. You're with other people, you feel safe, and we're going to all try this next thing. Yeah. But also, it seems to also have to do with the dopamine and the craving. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if the impulse control hasn't developed yet for teens, right. I mean, if this feels good, then more is going to feel better. Mm. But it didn't always, so he needed something else to feel differently. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, do you remember looking back and feeling like you had like prevention kind of conversations at younger ages with your kids? Yeah. Well, that was the next thing I was going to say. Okay. (laughs) So I, that's what I would have said to you as a mom with young children, right? So yes, we talked about um, smoking cigarettes, about nicotine and why it's risky and why it's unhealthy and why do people not stop? Well, because it's very hard once you start. We talked about underage drinking and why it's just too risky and not worth it. Mm. We talked about when they're adults and they drink. We, we made those points all the time that there's no reason to drink to excess. You don't drink to get drunk, mm-hmm. that that's not a responsible thing for an adult to do, um, not drinking and driving. We did talk about some of the prevention. We never talked about marijuana, oh. and I don't know why. Except that I think probably my husband and I weren't sure exactly what we thought. We hadn't, we hadn't decided that it was necessarily as dangerous as alcohol. Mm. Um, and we had both smoked pot in college. Um, and it wasn't really a big deal. Yeah. So I, I think we were putting it off. We were putting it off just hoping it wasn't going to be a problem. (laughs) It hadn't been for my girls. So I assumed, you know, okay, my kids are staying away from it. Yeah. But that's one of my big wish I would have done it is known more about it. Is it different than it was when we were younger? And even if it weren't, which I believe it is, Mm. we still had such a huge family genetic of mental illness and substance abuse. Yeah. Which I have to say, I again, and I think I've said this in previous episodes, just in working in group scenarios and in classrooms and things, if you ask the question, raise your hand if you have been personally either either have been touched by someone who is has substance use disorder or someone in your family, direct family or extended family. So, you know, a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a sibling, a cousin. Raise your hand if, if they've been diagnosed with substance use disorder the majority of people in a classroom or in a group are going right. to raise their hand. Yeah. So, and, and for the longest time, my husband thought it was all on my side mm. because I knew since I was a child that I had, my mother had so many relatives who committed suicide or were alcoholics mm. and it was depression and mental illness, but that wasn't diagnosed back then. Mm. And I knew it, but it looks different when it's your child. Absolutely. And you still don't expect that kind of thing to happen to your kid. Yeah. And, um, and then my husband was like, oh, oh, well, yeah, my uncle actually was alcoholic. Oh, and both his kids had problems. So his family didn't talk about it. So it wasn't really in his mind, but then he was like, oh yeah, it is on my side too. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just really important. So no, we did not do all of the prevention that we could have done. Yeah. But well, I guess that technically you would call it a shoulda, coulda, woulda. However, I I think, I think there needs to be like a little asterisk footnote to this too, of that you can have those conversations and you can do all the quote unquote right things. And there is a piece of this, you know, that, you know, I always would tell, you know, young adults and things is this is the thing. And the thing that I would say that I say to my kids too, but is just like the brain is a funny thing and you just don't know what's going to light up those reward pathways And there's lots of different reasons why people try to use substances, whether it's recreational, it's fun just to try it, risk-taking, or because I feel anxious or stressed or coping and those types of things. But there is a crapshoot element to this where, 
you know, someone could choose to use and their reward pathway lights up in some way. Not everyone, but some people do. And their reward pathway lights up and goes, Ooh, this feels good. I want to do this again. And you know, it's the piece of it where I think that shows to you and your husband and, and your family that you said, okay, this is beyond our depth. We got to get professionals and get expert help in. Right. And that's what you do. And that's what you did. And then look at where you came from. Right. It's just, I yeah. don't know, just to take that shame and kind of stigma out of it. Of right. Yep. Just, you can be the good on paper, perfect on paper people. You <laughs> but you can't be objective. Correct. It's, it, you know, it's and, very and difficult I, when you're in I it. so wish, you know, as I said, things changed slowly. Things were turbulent uh, for at least a year, year and a half as they got worse. And I don't think we recognized how bad it had gotten. Yeah. Um, we're, we're horrified at some of the things that happened that we didn't react to. Yeah. Um, and I wonder now if other people, family or friends could see how bad things were, but didn't say anything because they didn't want to meddle. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I you know, if I ever suspect somebody's having trouble i i'm not going to hesitate to say something to the parent mm. or to the child because you need help um bad things would happen at our house we would address them we'd take away more privileges we talk about the risk of what he's doing why it's dangerous why we're afraid you know we had our share of slamming doors and yelling and the next thing you know you know paul had trouble waking him up to come down for dinner one night i mean literally helped him stand up off the floor where he had napped, Mm -hmm. put his arm around Paul's shoulders to help him walk down the steps to dinner because he was on something. Mm. Well, you know, why wouldn't you have just walked him right to the car and taken him to the emergency room or taken him somewhere? Right. But we didn't. We took him, took him down and made him have dinner. I mean, you know, or waking him up in the morning because he had stayed out all night, which we didn't know Mm -hmm. and couldn't wake up because of whatever he took when he finally did go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Those things happened too often. Mm -hmm. And then we started using drug tests, thinking that each time things would be different. Once you're using drug tests at home, I mean, you need desperate help. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I wish we had recognized and acted sooner, but again, I don't know. I don't know what the difference was, but we're lucky that nothing horrible happened. Like when I, what I hear when you're saying that is that like your baselines shifted, like probably very nudged along very slowly so much. But when you're, when you're in it, it's hard to see it. Yeah. But I just, you know, I don't think you should feel shame in it. It's a, it's a learning experience. Right. And I don't feel shame because I know it's a physical thing you're born with. Yeah. But I do realize how you can be blind to how bad things are. Yeah. When you're just trying to live. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to put that that's a lot of- And I'll tell you one more big thing <laughs> that I would have changed when my kids were little is when Max was in treatment, one of the counselors handed me this tiny little book called The Enabler. And I was mm. so insulted. <laughs> I said, why are you handing this to me? What about these other moms here? He said, he just smiled. He said, just read it. You'll find it interesting. (laughs) And what happened when you read your little booklet? Oh my gosh. I was so shocked to see all the things that I had done for my kids when they were little Uh that really weren't helpful in the long run. Yeah. So I was a stay-at-home mom for probably nine years. And I figured that was my job. If they forgot their musical instrument or their homework or their lunch, I ran it to them. Yep. You know, instead of letting them feel the consequences of not planning ahead. Mm. I always, I always took, took it over. Didn't want them to get in trouble when they needed to, Mm. you know, it prevented that executive functioning to blossom because mom would be there to fix it. Um, And it sounds simple, Mm -mm. but, but that would have that, you know, if they didn't get invited to a birthday party, um, my daughter says, oh, I can remember you giving me like a hundred reasons probably of why I didn't get invited. Cause you didn't want me to be disappointed or hurt. And, and, and she said to me, no mom, it's a huge party. I just don't like her. And she doesn't like me. <laughs> you know, It was simple. And she had the resiliency that I didn't, you know, I was so worried about her feelings and our kids need to be 
disappointed and be hurt and learn that they're tough and they'll be okay. Yeah. You know, recognize it. I need it to recognize feelings, but not always try to fix them. Yep. Or prevent them even. Yep. Um, so it goes on. I mean, there's a lot more serious things later Mm -hmm. that become enabling. I, you know, when Max couldn't wake up and miss the bus, shouldn't have taken him. I shouldn't have taken him in late. You know, I, maybe that would have made things happen faster. He would have been in more trouble earlier. I don't know. Mm. You know, you can second guess, but those are things that I would read. I love that book, um, The Gift of Failure. That's what I was about Jessica to say. Lundy. I was about to say, sounds like The Gift of Failure. I'll it's link it in the show thing. notes. It's allowing yep. your children to grow and become who they are. And you have to go through hurt um, and difficult situations to get there. And also, did you, um, just thinking of enabling, did you ever read Melanie Beatty's uh, Codependent No More? Yes. Okay. I'll yeah. link that in the show notes as well, too. That's one. Good. That's really, that was really a great good. one. Really good. Yeah. That's a classic recovery text, yep. I would say. Really good. And There's so much out there. Um, so much. And a lot of it overlaps. Yes. Just as good parenting. Uh, yes. Good parenting. I, yes. It doesn't even have to do with substance use. But Agree. it really is a less hands-on Let's make sure your kid feels happy mm. than to help them be secure and confident. Yes. Um, so, yeah. I agree. I think a lot of it is overlapping things. And I think a lot of it, I agree. A lot of the tenants and even how I, you said, Max said like of the 12 step program, one's only about substance like use and the rest is not about that. A lot of the things really do just have those ways to feel, feel who you are, feel good in who you are, have your own self-worth and feel like a confident, stable person. So you can be- And how do you treat others? Yes. And how, you know, how are you with others who don't agree? I mean, all of that, it's so character building. It's um, making amends, saying you're sorry when you have done something wrong, recognizing it. Yeah. And then letting yourself move on. Yeah. I mean, really, really good stuff. So Cynthia, what would you tell parents that may be listening to this episode that they themselves have teens or kids and they are hearing elements of maybe their situation currently? Um, what would you tell them maybe to do? What advice would you give? Um, hang in there. <laughs> um, I guess the main thing I would do is tell them to talk to other people share this with other people, other parents, other professionals. Don't hide your concerns because you think it's your fault or people will judge you. It helps so much to have support and objectivity. Um, I am more likely to share um, and did share with some friends and my sisters when we were going through this. Paul is not likely a lot. I don't think a lot of men will bring up Mm. some personal family things that are going on, but when he finally shared with someone it was so huge for him because that family was having a very similar problem Mm. or had already been through it and then he started sharing more and more with other dads when it was appropriate and it was such a relief because you can't just rely on each other when you're having a difficult time it takes a toll on a marriage Um, it's important for both parents to be united even if you're unsure of the next steps but to be willing to learn and deal with it together um, and use professionals. This is not something parents can fix. Even if you're a therapist or a healthcare professional, mm. you can't do it when it's your own kid. Yeah. Um, you really need to rely on professionals and you might need to get a second or third opinion. We did go to several different counselors and even two different psychiatrists before we felt confident that they were seeing what we were seeing and, and before Max was willing to connect with someone. Um, so that's, that's really important. Someone said that when you're dealing with addiction of your, your child, you have to learn to see the action, the facts, the behaviors, Mm. not their intent, not who they were before, um, they started using Mm. because that person's not there right now. And you, you, you can't hope that they're going to be better. That's a great point. And I guess the other thing is what I said earlier too, the whole family needs to be involved at least to some extent, um, to understand how it has affected the family and what their role is in this family member's recovery. Yeah. 
And I can also link up in the show notes a link to um, there's lots out there to to the typical family roles of of substance use disorder um, because there there is actually kind of when you look at a family you have the two parents and then usually the kids though these roles are oftentimes in a family where one of the adults is the person who. Um, is dependent on a substance, but right. there are those roles that people seem to take on as a way to cope and a way to survive. Um, and yeah. I'm sure that they just occur. So I can link that up as well. If people wanted to learn more about that and read more about that. Um, what advice would you tell parents like me that might have younger kids that aren't yet adolescents? So maybe, you know, our littles, our elementary age kids, based on your experience, what would, what advice would you give would you give me with my nine and my five-year-old? Well, absolutely know what your personal values are. What are your family's values and model them? You know, if you believe in honesty and not lying, then don't tell them to, oh, tell them I'm not here if, if someone calls they don't want to speak to, right? And talk about your non-negotiables. This is kind of a CTC mantra, mm. but you need to know you and your husband and your children, what are the non-negotiables for this family? Mm. This is not going to be acceptable. And share your ex- expectations with them ahead of time. Articulate what what you expect from them around important things from an early, early age, um, like how to be a good friend, how to say no to a friend mm. if needed, how to um, what what's involved with dating and relationships. What are your expectations? You know, I didn't talk about dating. I was planning to in ninth or 10th grade with my oldest, mm-hmm. right? Because she wasn't dating and it wasn't happening. So I thought, well, we'll talk about that when it's an issue. But by the time she was in high school, she had all kinds of notions that she had heard about in middle school about what people did mm. in dating and what, what you know, there were no boundaries that she knew of. And so let me tell you, the other two um, were probably... 10 and 12, we talked about what's making out, who makes out, (laughs) when is it appropriate? Uh You know, all those kind of, if you don't tell them, they hear it somewhere else and they form their own conclusions. I like, I like what you said about expectations. I, I, that's so funny. You said that word too, because I was running this morning and I was thinking of, you know, we have to get some, you know, topics and things. And I was trying to think of things for future episodes. And one of them was like, how do you, the importance of expectations, because I'm finding with certain things, especially with my third grader, that there is just in all all different, not just drug and alcohol, mental health, like all different aspects of just parenting in general, where a lot of times we go along, me and my husband go along thinking like, well, surely they know what to do in that situation. Well, surely they do not. And that you really do have to be so literal with certain things to set those boundaries and set expectations around behavior with lots of different things. I remember one of mine when they were little said, oh, well, he stole it, but he needed it. He needed it, mama. I'm like, you know what? You know, so there's, there's a, they, they form these ideas if you haven't said, and they're not going to necessarily do everything you say. Right. They're not going to live up to it. We don't always live up to our own expectations, but they need to know what yours are. Right. Before they hear somebody else's. Um, and that, that's important. So it's talk about alcohol and nicotine and marijuana. I think kids are really smart. They I are. do. And I think they just need as much information as they can get. Yeah. So that they'll make good choices later. And they need to hear it in second grade, again in fifth grade, again in seventh. I mean, they need to constantly talk about it because as it becomes relevant, they'll have more questions. Yeah. In little snippets, little pieces kind That's of. Right. Yeah. And we don't have to know. I know one mom who said, I feel like I need to talk to my kids about marijuana, but I don't even know that much about it. Mm. That's okay. Ask them what they know. We have a podcast episode all about marijuana. Very good. I know. That's a good one. <laughs> you just ask them what they know and what do they think and let's figure it out together. Yeah. They need the information. Yeah. Because it is true. If they're not hearing it from you, they're going to hear it from their peers or they're going to go on yep. the, the internet. And, and especially during it. middle school, I feel like you, you wouldn't, you'd be shocked how much they know about things that they don't even bring up when they come home. Mm. So we typically like to end with a take action tip on every episode. So if you, and I know you shared tons throughout this entire conversation, but if you had to pick just one thing that maybe someone's going to pick up their kids, meet them at the bus stop, meet them at a game, whatever it is, um, what would you say for listeners, an easy thing that they could do uh, 
when, after hearing this episode today with little ones and big ones, or maybe it's the same tip for all ages? You know, I think I already said it, but the main thing for me is that I think parents need to find out what their family history is of mental health, substance use disorders. You need to know, not all families have shared it, or you'll be like, oh, right. I remember that person was never at family gatherings. Why is that? So share with your children your family history of mental health and substance disorders so that they understand. Mm. Um, and, and also, how does it look for different people and at different ages? Be prepared. Then they can protect themselves by making better decisions, or they'll know when to ask for help if something just feels uncomfortable or overwhelming. It's, it's getting information. Knowledge is power. I had to That's say, right. I had to say, I said, you know, addictive disorders can be hereditary mm-hmm. often are when it's in a, when, when children start using early, that's mm-hmm. generally a genetic um, disorder and clinical depression and anxiety are also frequently hereditary. Yep. Um, and if it, it, you know, every child's not going to be affected. Not all of my children have gone through the same thing, mm. but they need to understand the risk for themselves and how to make healthy decisions. Yeah. And also that it's not a flaw. It's not, a, it's like being born with an analogy. Yeah. It's not their fault, but it's going to be their responsibility to make sure it doesn't. Cynthia, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story with us. You're welcome. I'm, I enjoyed talking to you, Chrissy. I'm, I'm, I think a lot of parents and listeners out there are going to identify, resonate, and just really benefit from hearing this story. So thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you everyone for joining us today and listening in. Um, Just as a reminder, you can follow me now on social media, um, on Instagram at CTC underscore Chrissy, or on Facebook at Chrissy.CTC, which I'll link everything in the show notes. Um, For more information related to the podcast and other resources, as well as our parent to parent blog. And, um, Make sure that you also click subscribe or follow in the podcast app that you're listening to us in so that you can get new episodes every other Monday and stay up to date. So thanks for listening and we will talk to you in two weeks. Bye.